God's holy word to the second, or rather, 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you turn there, I want to thank the congregation, the session, Pastor Dan, and um, all of you for your kind hospitality to Wilma and me over these two weeks. It's been a wonderful privilege to be in your midst, to serve you with the word and to be blessed by your congregation. All the sweet, kind hospitality, it was a great delight. So we thank the Lord for you all. Let's turn to God's Word, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 48. It is the end of the grand story of David and Goliath. You children know that story well, and this is the end. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shearim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David, this is our text, beginning at verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. As soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow, and his belt. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word 
has taught us that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we pray that you would bless us with this word tonight. We pray that you would speak as a father to his child, that you would show us great things about your Son, our Savior and our Lord. And we ask, O oh God, that you would bless then the preaching of your word, that it might go forth with power, and that your word would find its place in our hearts, that we might bend the knee to the great King, our Lord Jesus, know his love for us, and that we might be assured of that love even as we covenant steadfast love to him. And so bless your people. O oh, Father, you have said, seek my face. And corporately, we reply, your face do we seek. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The grand story of David and Goliath is behind us. It's a story about two representatives of two kingdoms. The story of David and Goliath is a story of Christ and his defeat of Satan, the champion of the hosts of heaven. And as the narrator concludes this great and glorious climatic story, after all, it takes up most of the verses of all of 1 and 2 Samuel. He concludes with what literary types call a denouement, it's the final outcome. We might say it's, it's the result of or the tidying up of all the loose ends. And this is what the author does. He concludes this narrative. And actually, this narrative has three parts to this denouement. The first is in verse 50 through 54, Israel defeating the Philistines and David taking the head of Goliath. And then the second is verses 55 through 58, where Saul, the king of Israel, asks Abner, whose son is he? And then lastly, in chapter 18, 1 through 4, a very misplaced chapter heading, we have the third part, where Jonathan and David become spiritual friends. And these are the these last two parts of the denouement is what we'll concentrate on this evening. Now it's important for us to remember what led up to this story and where this narrative is going. David has already been anointed king over Israel, and these several chapters speak about David getting to the throne. He's not there yet. Currently, Saul is the king of Israel, and even though Samuel has told him that the kingdom would not endure under him, and that it has been torn away from him, and had already been given to a neighbor, Saul doesn't just peacefully resign, but rather he loves the power, and there is such, there's still a lot of drama before the transition occurs. But as we'll see this evening, significant developments are being made. 
And so, very simply, we're going to look at these two parts of the denouement under two headings. The importance of Saul's question, and secondly, the importance of Jonathan's covenant with David. Now, these questions aren't just important for them, it's important for you and for me. And I pray that God would enable us to see the importance. So first, the importance of Saul's question. Verses 55 through 58, they reveal a conversation between Saul and his calculating lieutenant Abner. And verse 55 takes us back in time just before David's victory, when they were going forth from, from Saul to meet the Philistines. And King Saul then at that time says to Abner, who is the commander of the army, he says to Abner, whose son is, is this youth? Now, this question seems like it's out of place. Perhaps when you have read this passage, you might have just gone over it and not considered much, but in your mind you're saying, that's rather strange, certainly. After 18 chapters, we know who David is, and so should King Saul. After all, David was playing the harp or the lyre in King Saul's palace. So why the question? Well, two things we need to know. First, remember that this is a part of the denouement. It's a tidying up of the loose ends of this narrative. But second, we need, and this is important, we need to understand the question that Saul asks Abner. He didn't ask Abner who David was, but whose son is David. Saul, in other words, was asking about David's family. And nothing in these verses necessarily implies that Saul failed to recognize who David was. Now these two thoughts help us understand why these verses are here. Back in chapter 17, verse 24, when Goliath defiled the armies of God, the living God, all the men, the narrator tells us in verse 11, they fled. They fled from Goliath. And as they were treating, they told David about the reward that King Saul was offering to the person who would go and defeat the army destroy the enemy. And what was that reward? Well, there were three rewards. The first reward was that the king would grant them great riches. Second, that the king would give him his daughter to marry. And third, that the king would make his father's house free from debt, from any taxes. And so, when David returned from slaying the giant, it is understandable that Saul would inquire, Oh, whose son is he? 
What's David's background? What's his social status? Who's going to be the family of my new son-in-law? And which family is going to be free from paying taxes in Israel? But there's something more that's going on here. And we should be alerted to it by its repetition. You probably know that in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. But if something's very important, very, very important, things are tripled, like Scrabble. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's so interesting here is that King Saul asked the question, not once, not twice, but three times. And that's for us to take note. This isn't something we just quickly read over, but it's supposed to grab our attention and say, what's going on here? Why do we have the question, whose son is this youth? We have it in verse 55, verse 56, and 58. And interestingly, three times in the greater narrative, we have the answer. Chapter 16, 18, 17, 12, and then 58. Now, why is this question so important? Now, we need to remember where we are in redemptive history. At the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, we are given the summary of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the author is saying Israel needs a king. There is no king. We need a king, and we need guidance. We need to be shepherded by a priest king. And then, the next book is, in our Bible, Ruth, where the setting of the narrative is in what city? Bethlehem, the breadbasket of Israel. Now move on to our book in 1 Samuel 17, and look at verse 17 where Jesse's back at home in Bethlehem, and he said to David his son, as the brothers are on the battlefield, he said, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, about a bushel, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands, see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now, do you see what the narrator is telling us? Blessing is coming to Israel from Bethlehem. Not just in terms of bread, but now in terms of a greater provision, a king. A king is coming. The man of God's own choosing, God is bringing him to his people. And three times we are told that David 
is the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And Bethlehem is in Judah. And from Judah, Father Jacob told us, he promised that a king would come in Genesis 49. And so for every person in Israel who would be reading the narrative to themselves and to their children and to their grandchildren, they would say, as they read the story, they would, they would comment, God is at work. God's on the move. He's providing a king for us, a king from Bethlehem. And what a happy, glorious, redeeming news this would be for Israel as they just came and, or they just read the book of Judges. But we know redemptive history doesn't stop with David, does it? Doesn't it? No, it's fulfilled in the greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the question that is paramount in Christ's life as to his purpose and to his life. In fact, it's so important that the evangelist Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' lineage as the son of who? David. The son of David according to his humanity. And as you look through, then, the Gospel of Matthew in the first chapter, just note in your reading how often David is mentioned. Christ Jesus is the great fulfillment, the priest king of Israel. He has come in the person of our Lord Jesus, the son of David. And so important is this theme to the evangelist Mark that he begins his narrative of our, Je of our Lord Jesus Christ being the Son of God, his lineage according to his divine nature. And Mark ends his gospel with the same truth, with the confession of the centurion. When he looked at the cross, truly this man was the Son of God. The gospel writer Luke, he combines both of them. First, in giving Jesus birth in chapter 2, born from the house and lineage of David. And then in the next chapter, he concludes Jesus' genealogy with these words, the son of Adam, the son of God. Do you see? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Mary, the son of God. Which is to say, to know Jesus Christ as the God-man is to have salvation. And the Apostle John, you remember in his epistle, he so clearly writes this very truth. 1 John 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And so, dear people of God, do you understand how important this question is? Whose son is he? That is the most important question that can be ever asked. 
Whose son is he? To know that answer is, John says, to know life eternal, life in Christ, a new life in our Savior. There is no salvation without our Lord Jesus. And so Saul's question is the most important question for all of us. This is the Christ we preach throughout the world. This is the Christ we proclaim throughout the world. The eternal Christ who took to himself our humanity, who identified with us so fully in flesh and blood so that he might deliver us from our sins and bring us back to the Father to bring us to glory, the God-man for our salvation. And my dear friends, this is the gospel we preach. This is the gospel that we must declare wherever we are. Now, there are many important questions to ask, but there's none more important than this. Do you know whose son he is? Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, the Son of David. And believing that is salvation. And interestingly, after Jesus had defeated Satan on the cross, the Father rewarded his Son. He gave him great riches and eternal inheritance. He gave him a bride. Do you remember how Jesus was searching for a bride in John chapter 3? The church of the Lord Jesus. And every family who belongs to Jesus is exempt. As Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. No debt, glorious privilege, and blessing with Christ. So the important question this is the question you ask your friends. This is the question you live. This is the question that is to be upon your lips. Very simple question. Do you know whose son Jesus Christ is? So the importance of Saul's question. Secondly, the importance of Jonathan's covenant. Now at first glance, there doesn't seem like there's a connection between the previous verses and these verses of chapter 18, 1 through 4. But actually, the last part of the denouement is found here in these four verses. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, there's the connection. The Saul of Jonathan was knit to the Saul, Saul of David. Now, what a remarkable response we have here from someone in Jonathan's position. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Here is the king's eldest son, a royal prince. And as you know the story of 1 Samuel, you know how, how Jonathan had earned his, his stature and the admiration of the people of Israel through his prior faith, his valor as a prince and as a captain. And he's the apparent heir to the throne. In such a situation, your pastor's going through the kings, the historical books. You know that in 
these kinds of situations, it's very common for a man in Jonathan's position to kill those who would have his office, who would take his position as king, to get rid of him, at least to undermine him, to criticize him, but often to destroy him. But we don't see this in Jonathan. No, Jonathan loved David as his own soul, Scripture tells us. They became soulmates. Now, some of you know that I have a twin brother, and we are, or were roommates very close for nine months. And that was close, and we're still close. But this is closer. Jonathan and David became soulmates, like one soul in two bodies. Here is a bond of love deeper than any ordinary relationship or friendship. And then Jonathan does something extraordinary. He makes a covenant with David as an expression of his love for David. And what does he do? He cuts a covenant. A covenant that we know they did in the Middle East that God commanded Abraham to do. Animals were cut in two and the two pieces were set over against each other. And then Jonathan and David would walk through those broken pieces. And as they walked through, they would say, if we break covenant with each other, may we be torn apart like these animals are. It's the oath, the self-maledictory oath. It was a pledge. It was a vow of fidelity to each other, of faithfulness that Jonathan made with David, loving him as himself. What an incredible, an incredible example of male friendship. Perhaps the greatest that we have in the scriptures. They come from different sides of the track. And if you study these chapters, you'll probably come to the conclusion that Jonathan is about 20 years older than David. And then notice what Jonathan does. He gives him a sign. Now you know that when God makes a covenant with us, he also helps us understand that covenant by giving us a sign. So circumcision, the sign is the cutting off. Baptism, sign of water. Davidic covenant, we have the king. The new covenant, we have the spirit. And this is what now Jonathan does. He doesn't just make a covenant, cut a covenant, but he adds to that a sign. Notice what he does. He takes, he strips himself off his, of his robe, and he gives it to David. And then he takes off his armor and gives it to David. 
And if that's not enough, even, Scripture says, his sword and his belt, he gives to David. Everything, in other words, he gives to his friend David. Now, do you see what Jonathan is doing here? He is passing over his succession rights to David. He's giving up his own crown rights. He, he's stepping aside and saying, David, David. As he clothes him with his own regalia, he's saying, David, you are the next king of Israel. And not me. Jonathan, this is amazing. He's, he's recognizing Yahweh's sovereign choice. And he's submitting to Yahweh. And what does he do? He bows before this king. What an amazing scene of self-sacrifice. Humbling himself before this shepherd boy. The son of Jesse the Benjaminite. He's not with, angry with God for passing over him. Not at all. There's no resentment at all. He's not filled with envy. He's not filled with anger. No, rather, he loves David all the more, and he cuts this covenant with him. What a glorious picture of self-giving love of a friend. It's beautiful. And this is reciprocated then. David relates to Jonathan in such a loving way. And out of this mutual love, a love that is stronger than death, they become one in spirit. And they make a covenant to guarantee that nothing will break their holy spiritual covenant and friendship. You remember earlier, whereas Saul's armor did not fit David, Jonathan's fit like a glove and a hand. Beautiful, glorious. And did you notice in verse 2? The narrator interjects this verse for contrast's sake. Saul here, the greedy king, he relates to David enviously and uses him to advance his own esteem. You might think after such a great victory, destroying Goliath, the enemy of Israel, Saul would have words of praise for Yahweh exalting the great God of Israel for such a deliverance, and then also for David. But there's not even a word. None. Silence. Why? Because Saul has no love for either God or David. In fact... He's incapable of love because he does not know God's love. And my dear friends, this is key to a loving relationship. You cannot truly love one another until you know that you are truly loved by God. 
You cannot truly express any affection unless you are sure, assured of God's love for you. Because only then are you free from ulterior motives like Saul of getting attention and, and love from one another. You see, Jonathan knew this love of God. David knew the love of God. And therefore, their love for each other could flow freely without any manipulation. It was a beautiful, glorious, sweet, enduring love for each other. Now let's return to the beginning of the last part of the denouement. What was it? What was it? And why was it at this time that Jonathan's soul was knit to David? What happened? What happened that spurred on Jonathan's covenant making and his great love expressed here in such extraordinary humility for a prince? Verse 1, chapter 18. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Do you see? Can you picture it? Jonathan was there. Jonathan heard David say to his father, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And by faith, Jonathan at that moment understood, having seen the great victory over the enemies of God, and that David was a Benjaminite, the one from where God would promise, had promised a king, Jonathan understood that David was the anointed of the Lord, the Christ of the Lord. One from the tribe of Judah, one that everybody, everyone in Israel was looking for, a king. And this announcement of David confirmed then by that spectacular defeat of God's blessing upon David, evidenced by the Spirit of the Lord being transferred from his father Saul to David, the new king. Jonathan understood God's way. And he humbly acknowledged David as successor to the throne. Long live the Lord's anointed. Now, my dear friends, this singularity explains the deep, what we might call the one-soul relationship between these two men. It's not just two men having an outstanding relationship with one another, something that just any of us could accomplish with enough humility or with the right person or even that we could attain with our own spouses. Now, in fact, this relationship is so extraordinary that David says 
upon the death of his beloved friend. In 2 Samuel 2 or 1, Jonathan lies slain on your high places, speaking of the mountains of Geboah. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Jonathan here models the way a believer is knit in a bond of covenant faith with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. A steadfast love. And he illustrates then the only proper response to the anointed of the Lord, our Lord Jesus. And that means submission to God's king. It means to give up all your pretended rights to the anointed king. It means following King Jesus and to submit to him because by faith you recognize him as the Lord's anointed. You recognize him as your superior, your savior. The one, as we read in Psalm 18, the one who delivers us from all our enemies and we're saved. That's what you're doing. It means to enter into covenant, promising to be faithful to King Jesus till death and beyond. And it means loving him more than you love yourself. Now, how is that possible for us to do it? Our Lord commands that of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength, with everything. But how are you going to do it? Have we ever, even once, kept that holy command? It's the answer to the first question we ask. Whose son is he? All of our love and devotion to Jesus is predicated on his eternal love for us. We love him because he first loved us. Jonathan loved David because Jonathan was loved by God. Our Lord Jesus showed us this love and that he not just stripped his armor, he stripped himself and he clothed us with his righteousness. He emptied himself to enrich us. But he did more than Jonathan. He clothed himself with our rags, our sinful rags, so that we might be clothed with his obedience. And as the Apostle John declares, in this is love, in this is love, 
1 John 4.10. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And by faith in Christ Jesus, the anointed of the Lord, we enjoy this love. A love truly. A love that is stronger than death. A love that is eternal. A love that secures for you and me eternal friendship. Supplies us with grace to love. Love him now and love him forever. Such love, such a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our dear Father, we're so overwhelmed by your love for us in Jesus, for the covenant that you've cut with Christ Jesus from all eternity and that you have revealed in time. For Father, you have loved this world so much that you sent your only beloved Son, Jesus Christ, so that all who would believe in him to be the Son of God, the one who took upon himself our nature, those who would believe in him, that he was the God or is the God-man, would not die, but have eternal life, so that they might always bask in your presence and enjoy the eternal friendship with you, our dear Savior. For, Father, you did not send him into this world to condemn the world, but you sent him to this world so that we might come to know you, our loving, heavenly, benevolent Father, the one who gave his Son and did not withhold him. Oh God, we pray that we might know more of your love day by day, and that because of our Lord Jesus Christ's love for us and his securing love because of the cross, we ask that you will continue then to give us that grace to love you more and more and more. And as we read your word, our hearts would be filled with affection for you, our dear Savior, and what it took you to bring us home and to enjoy an eternal friendship, to love us with an everlasting love. And so we ask this night that you would give us increased grace, that we would never deny the Lord who has redeemed us, the King of the church, the one who has covenanted with us. Oh God, we thank you for the covenant of grace, and we pray that more and more our love as a congregation our love as individuals, as love, our love as spouses, our love as friends, our love as fathers towards their children, our love for each other 
would be seen by the world and that they might know that this love is because of your love for us in Christ and inquire like Saul, whose son is he. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God and the Son of David. Amen. Amen. Well, let